Welcome to the Sunday Preaching Podcast of The Point Church, located in Perdido Key, Florida. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. You thought you were getting out of it today, didn't you? Not so close. Uh, if, if you do have any questions about the possibility of answering the call to attend worship at that campus, please let me know. We've already had someone, uh, I did, had someone approach me last service say that they're ready. So I said, okay, we'll, we'll meet when, when Thanksgiving is over. So if that's you, please um, call, text me. Just tell me, let's grab lunch, coffee. Um, and also, right when this service is done, I'm going to try my best to get you out not on time, but um, close to it. Um, uh, my family and I, we do have to slip out. And so they did announce it at the Jackson campus this morning as well via video. And so they have their Thanksgiving celebration right after their service is probably just now starting. And so it gives us an opportunity to go over there and just to fellowship with them after the announcement. So I'm not trying to avoid you. I'm just trying to get over there quickly. So I even told Brooke, I said, when I start praying, exit. So go get the kids, pick me up, right? So again, Anyway, Philippians chapter four, verses two through nine. We, can you believe we've been in the book of Philippians for eight weeks in a nine-week series already? Uh, it has been, not trying to be that guy or a funny dad, it has been a joy. It has been joyful. Uh, today, we're going to discuss the need to have a joyful practice, a joyful practice, starting in verse two. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I'll just stop there. Uh, I said this in the last service. I just want you to know that pastors try really hard uh, in their study to get all the right content. And I worked really hard to pronounce those names really well for you. And all week long, I was so confident that I was going to get it until last night. I was not confident. And so I did what many pastors would do. They would put the enunciation in parentheses right beside the name so I would not mess it up. So that's how I got it. So I'm sure some of you are like, oh, I knew those names. That's my middle name. Uh, but anyway, I did practice that all week, just FYI. I'm proud of myself. Verse 3 says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Aren't you thankful for that? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable if there is in any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the reading of his word and everyone said, amen. I'm sure some of you have a favorite sports movie. Uh, our culture, we, we by and large love sports. Even if you don't like sports per se, uh, you know about sports, you know about sports movies. Uh, 
some people in the room, your favorite sports movie uh, might be Hoosiers. Any Hoosiers in the, in the room, by the way? We've had hands in, in both, both services. So I'm sure if you are a Hoosier, you were uh, given a Bible and commanded to watch the movie. A Bible and play basketball and watch this movie and try to exemplify Coach Dale. Right? If you don't know anything about Hoosiers, the movie, uh, Coach Dale was for, from New York State, hired to come and coach a, an Indiana high school basketball team that has uh, in the past had success, but in recent years just not gotten over the hump, right? And so he's come and, uh, and he made quite an impression on the community immediately uh, because the community was trying to dictate how he coached to win. And he said, listen, I'm the coach. I have a certain way to coach. This is what I expect. Uh, he made no apology for it at whatsoever. Um, and, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not a huge basketball fan. I've not watched many basketball uh, games in general, but I do enjoy the principles and enjoy this uh, movie. Uh, coach Dale was an extremely uh, meticulous and tough coach. He had high expectations of the players. He expected them to play together. He didn't like showboats. He didn't like ball hogs. He coached them that if they did the small things well, the big things would take care of themselves. One of the small things that he coached on was you need to pass the ball to each other, right? Who's played basketball in the room? I played and I found out that I wasn't really good and so I stopped. I was short, slow, barely dribble, right? So, uh, 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 but I appreciate the component of teamwork. If you remember one of the scenes in the movie, the the leading scorer, uh, one of the best players at the time before they got the, the next guy who agreed. If you've watched the movie, you know what I'm talking about. You need to really go watch it if you've not. He was showboating. He was being a ball hog. He was, uh, had the most points out of anybody else on the team in that particular game. But the problem was that they were still losing. Right? He was not giving other people other opportunities. And you, you have possession of the ball longer. You can score more, so on and so forth. So what did he do? He finally took that player out of the game put him on the bench. They only had six players on the team and a, a player just a few moments later fouled out. So he had to sit on the bench. And so that team, that, that person that was the leading scorer got up and said, he, he started walking out of the court and he was telling the, the table, his number and all those things. And coach Dell said, no, I didn't tell you to get in, sit down. And so that leaves four people on the court. And the ref even came to coach Dell and said, coach, you only have four people on the court. He said, that's my team. They will play together. High expectations. High expectations. Meticulous, but tough. They had to work together. His goal was to teach them that if they worked together, they would actually succeed. If they tried to play on their own strength, being a ball hog or showboating and thinking that they are the best, they would fail because it is a team effort. Now, not to ruin it for you, but they would end up winning the Indiana State Basketball state championship. Now, I know that I was talking about sports, but some of this translates over to church life, especially in light of the scriptures that we just, just read and heard just a moment ago. We cannot, as individuals, do this church thing on our own, right? We, we can't do it. We can't just serve on our own ability. We need Christ's help, and we need each other to be able to do it well. Strong Christians in a church means that we have a strong church and an impactful church. If we try to do something on our own, we prove ourselves to be weak individuals and a weak church. And we don't, we don't want that, right? 
If we work together, the formula is quite simple. If we work together, we will succeed. And we should also always, I want you to write this down. This is the first point. We should always strive for unity. We should always strive for unity. It says in verses two and three, I entreat, Eudea and I entreat, Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. That should be our first focus, right? We should put some of our secondary or minor concerns to the side so that we can agree in the Lord. At the end of the day, Christ is still on the throne and that's something that we can agree on, right? If we are Christ followers, we have something in common. Let's start there. We agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Now, we're not exactly sure who that is. It could have been a specific individual. Some scholars and commentators, commentators seem to think so. Or it could just be Paul saying, hey, listen, I want you to find a mediator, to find someone, an elder in the church. It says, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, it's fairly obvious in this passage that unity wasn't at its best. Uh, we see here two ladies were in some sort of, of disagreement and it needed to be resolved, right? And these ladies were, were believers and they were likely prominent figures in the church. We know that because, I mean, to be in one of Paul's letters, named in one of his letters, that's a big deal, right? He, he, it's like, man, he knows me. Okay, fantastic. Prominent figures, they, they, they serve well, but they just have this one little disagreement or maybe several, but it's just these two individuals butting heads constantly maybe. But it's evident, though, even though they were disagreeing and had a little, you know, a tussle match going on, it's evident that they faithfully loved the gospel. Right? The scriptures say that they, they, they served, they, they communicated the gospel, they served faithfully. Now, I'm sure, I'm not sure that this could be an encouragement, but I pray that this is. This is a, it should remind us as believers in a local church that we'll have disagreements. That's inevitable right? No two people are the same. But to agree in the Lord means that those things need to be confronted and resolved quickly. That should be an encouragement to us, right? That he's saying ahead of time, hey, you'll have, you'll have disagreements, but agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. And Paul gives us a short outline on how to do that. But, but first, what about the disagreement? How do we, what, what is that? How do we, how can we find out what that was? I'm not sure we'll ever know for sure what it was. It likely wasn't a terrible atrocity, but it's obviously enough to cause enough of a stir to be addressed by Paul, so much so that he encouraged someone to be a mediator, to come in and to help. But what we can be sure of is that anything that is not settled can turn into an atrocity. It can begin in with a, a minor disagreement, something so minor, something that really ultimately does not matter, left unsettled, it can turn into broken relationships, or even worse, it can harm the church. And church should not be a place where people come and they feel like they're walking on eggshells because they don't have something resolved with another individual, or they're trying to hide from that person. Church should be a place of comfort. It should be a place of security and a place of joy. You should enjoy coming here. Church should be a place of stability. You, you should be able to walk into the church and, and know that you'll be equipped right, to spread the gospel, to be sent out. And also, I think one of the most important things, you come here 
so that you can be loved and that you can also love others. Shouldn't be a place that if you wonder if this person over here likes you or if you're wondering if we're all on the same page or not. But listen, church, it can be a temptation. It's easy. The temptation is to look at everyone else, though, and view them as the problem. Well, if they would just come and seek forgiveness from me, then we'd be good. Well, if they would just go over there and talk to that person, it would be good. No, 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 no. What's going on in your own life? Let, that, let, the, let the Lord work with them. You do what is right. Avoid that temptation. It's easy though, isn't it? Because we as sinful people typically think that we know the way. But it's in that very moment of thinking that is when we need to realize that there is only one true way and that is Christ Jesus. He should be our aim. And that's what Paul's saying. Agree in the Lord. The strength of the church begins with the strength of the individual Christian. When each individual is pressing on and maturing in their faith, they are striving for unity. But if an individual becomes isolated from other believers, they can become incredibly unstable. The church should be a place where, where people support each other. We encourage each other. We hold each other accountable. And we care for each other. In verse two, Paul uses the phrase, I entreat. Now, some translations may say, I plead with. You see, you see the repetition there. He uses that phrase back to back. All the parents and grandparents in the room, you know that what repeating yourselves can do to you. If you're a parent, you've had to repeat yourself. And I know someone out there might be saying, well, you, you don't repeat, you shouldn't repeat yourself. And I agree, right? We, we say it and it should be done. But, you know, we're all sinful people, including our children. Um, we have to repeat ourselves over and over and over and over. I remember just recently, I, I said to myself, or I said to Brooke, I said, I'm just, I'm, and there's one little thing, I'm tired of repeating myself. And as soon as I said this, I was deeply convicted because I reminded that the Lord is constantly repeating himself with me. But why do we repeat ourselves? Why do we? Well, we want to make sure our point gets across out of our love for them. I repeat myself to my children or to others because I have love for them, right? That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He repeats himself because he desires reconciliation to occur. He wanted them to have the, the same attitudes and values that, that Christ had. But, but what if they wouldn't reconcile on their own? Uh, what if they wouldn't do it? Right? I have two boys, and if, if they're having a, a, a disagreement on something, you know, many times we have to go in there and be, play mediator. Say, hey, listen, think rightly. Think, think well. And Paul said, true companion, help these women. And, and sometimes it's necessary to get a helpful uh, uh, guide from an outside perspective. Right? It could be a, a pastor. It could be uh, some, some other type of leader in the local church to help you think correctly because when you are disgruntled with someone, you know, your emotions are high. You may not be thinking rightly or correctly, right? Your emotions are just kind of like this sometimes. Now, sometimes you are right, but sometimes it helps to get that person in there to interject and so that you can finally reconcile you know, have you ever had a bad day at work and someone has said something or offended you or uh, uh, something has been decided at work or just something in general and you get home and you tell your husband and wife and you're just hot, right? You are just, you're so hot you can make an egg bowl, right? Just by holding it. I mean, and you say, when I go to work tomorrow, I'm going to settle this once and for all. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to go in there. 
I'm going to kick the door down and they're going to know that I'm right. They're going to even give me a million dollar raise because of my wisdom. Then you go to bed, you have a good night's rest and you wake up and you have breakfast and you think to yourself, you know what? It's not bad after all. It's not as bad as I think. A mediator is able to tell us what is true about us and the situation because, you know, sometimes when we're in that position, a lot of times what we think may not be true, right? We can think that someone is thinking something. Well, well, they think this about me and they upset me. And, and in many cases, if you've experienced this, they never thought that to begin with and they have no idea that you're disgruntled. So who's suffering? Them or you, right? Paul knew if they got right with the Lord, they would be right with each other, strengthening the church. And as the body of Christ, church members are to address matters objectively, frankly, lovingly, spiritually. It should set us up to be in a manner of rejoicing as we strive for unity. Now, in our attempt to strive for unity, we should also, I want you to write this down, strive for peace. To strive for peace. You see this in verses four through nine. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread those verses, but you see that concept in verses four through nine. The church, do, do you desire peace? Do, do you desire peace in your individual life? Yeah, I don't know anybody who would say, no, I don't want peace at all. Don't like it. Don't want to have it. No, we all, we all want peace. Aren't you thankful that, that, that the peace of God sustains us during hardship? Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that the peace of God can be present in our lives? Now, Paul's addressing here in these, in these verses the inevitable hardships that we'll have. They're coming. But we are to remain faithful in our rejoicing. So church, as an individual, even as a church, how will you respond? How will we, will we respond to those things? Now, I know that's a loaded question. And in some ways, there is no way that you can actually give an answer to that. But we can respond in two ways. And you see this in these verses. First way we can respond is that we can be upset, avoid rejoicing, having no peace with God. Or we can rejoice and have peace with God. That's much easier said than done. I realize that. Paul gives these three basic commands here to achieve that peace with God, though. You see in verses four through five, he commands the Philippians just simply rejoice, rejoice. That sounds simple enough, but what does that look like? Mitch, I don't, I don't know how to rejoice. Does that mean I have to get up and shout to lift up my hands just to smile constantly? You know, it's like Brooke, she, if we go somewhere, she's like, smile. Reminds me, smile. It's like Buddy the Elf. Smile is my favorite, you know, and awkwardly smile, you know? Uh, smile. Oh, but what does it look like to rejoice? Is it fake it till you make it? No, that's, that's not it. I would say it's, it's putting on Christ and dying to self. But Mitch, how in the world am I supposed to rejoice when fill in the blank, when, when I don't feel like my husband appreciates me, values me, or loves me? Won't come to church. How, 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 do I, how do I rejoice when my wife doesn't have anything to do with it? She won't even look at me. How, how am I supposed to rejoice when I just got this diagnosis? How am I supposed to rejoice when my kids want nothing to do with me? How am I supposed to rejoice fill in the blank? In some ways, let me just be honest, church, I do not know the answer to that. But I do know this. Paul knew that no situation 
is beyond the Lord's help. Christians can rejoice in that, if nothing else. He said to be gentle. Now, my translation says reasonableness. We should be reasonable, but we are called to be people that are gentle. Proverbs 51 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Now, have you ever given a harsh reply or answer to someone with no love and it turned out well for you? Not likely. It's, it's actually kind of started something else, right? You wanted to get your point across, but it started a whole other conversation. And Paul is telling the Philippians here that gentleness should characterize the church. We should be known people that are not militant, but gentle. He says in verse six, do not be anxious. Now, Paul, or Jesus said a lot about anxiousness in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six. Some of the most common causes of, of anxiety have to do with physical attributes, clothing, food and drink, and the future. Now, Jesus was speaking to his audience there about, hey, listen, don't, don't worry about these things. Don't worry about where your food comes from. The birds don't, aren't worried about it. Don't worry about where you're going to stay. The foxes have holes. That don't. The Lord sustains him. And God's word, here's an encouragement. God's word says that he's going to take care of us. So we just need to let him, right? We just need to let God take care of us. Have faith that he will do it. But let me contextualize that just a little bit. Our culture has so much attention of the physical attributes and so many people are anxious by the way that they look. So many people will spend hours and hours and hours looking in the mirror, critiquing themselves. You know, you have ladies saying to themselves, well, I'm not pretty enough. No one will notice me. Here, here, unmarried ladies in the room, let me just encourage you this. You have no responsibility to convince or impress the multitudes. The one who has a desire for you and you, the one who you are to marry will already be impressed by you. There's no need to work hard at that. You know, you have men in the room who think, well, I've just got to, I've got to be this certain way or no one will approve me as a man. Listen, if you are in Christ Jesus and you are a man, you are approved by Christ Jesus, have no need for anyone else's approval. But a lot of times what we do when we are worried and anxious about our physical attributes, we worship the person in the mirror and we make ourselves an idol. Oh, don't church, don't do that. Don't, don't fall into that anxiety trap with, with that Lord. The Lord says that you, 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 are, you, you, you are sinful, but he loves you and he wants to care for you. You do not need to impress people with your physical attributes, right? We're to die to self. Don't worry about the clothing. Right? You don't have to have the nicest clothing in the world. Right? You, don't, you don't have to. Food and the drink, and even the future. I was on the phone with someone just yesterday about the future, and we were talking about retirement funds and how that's incredibly, incredibly important for us to do. We should prepare for the future. But if we care so much about that, that we're putting away money to enjoy later and none of it now, we may not be good, incredibly Good stewards of that because we God still wants us to enjoy our local church, to invest in our local church, to enjoy our family, right? We shouldn't worry so much about the future. Listen, we can barely get away with today, can't we? Listen, some of you don't even have lunch plans yet, and that's going to be chaos here in about five minutes for you. You're going to get in the car. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Huh? Okay, all right. Well, fantastic. We're not going to eat. Let me know how that goes. If you need a mediator for that, let me know. Joe will do it. But here's the great antidote for anxiety. It's prayer. Paul said, don't be anxious, but if you are, pray. Prayer cures anxiety. 
The ultimate answer to anxiety is the peace of God. Peace is from, from God is divine. It transcends all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer for pe- prayer, people who pray, tongue-tied, prayerful people are peaceful people. They're peaceful. This should characterize our church. We should be incredibly peaceful because we pray with each other. We should set the example of peace in our community. We should be unified in thought and practice because of our unity and our peace with each other. He gives also a list of qualities that we should be characterized by as a, for us as Christians. He said, whatever is true, meaning we should be dependable. We should teach what is true. Listen, you should be a, a dependable person. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be dependable. Whatever is honorable, some translations say noble. We should be worthy of respect, meaning that we should give respect even if people are not giving it to us. Whatever is just means whatever is right. We do the right thing, Christians. We do what is right, even if everyone else is doing it wrong. And I say, well, I need to be vindicated. We need justice. Listen, no, we, we do the right thing. We do what is right. Whatever is pure or, or holy, listen, we should strive for holiness. It says, whatever is lovely, he says. The Christian should be lovable and loving. Have you ever wondered to yourself, am I lovable? No, what I'm not saying is that you should ask yourself, well, does anybody love me? No, no, no. You have people that love you. Like God loves you. Are you the type of person that has a lovable personality that people want to be around you because you're just lovable? Right? So many times we want people to love us. And we, and we do, right? We want people to love us. But how much are you loving others? And they know that. With words, Man. whatever is commendable, meaning don't be offensive. Listen, the gospel is already offensive enough. There's no need to make it more offensive, right? Let's, Jesus said it would be offensive and people would curse him. They're going to curse us. Listen, we're going to be persecuted. They persecuted him. But it's, again, it's already offensive enough. We don't need to put ourselves in the way. I'd rather God handle that than me, right? Amen to that. But we shouldn't be offensive just because. It says, be excellent, have upright morals, but worthy of praise. We should be in a constant state of praising God who's on the throne. He completes this statement by saying, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. When anxiety appears, the cure is prayer. When life is disorderly, the cure is mental and practical discipline. Striving for unity and striving for peace go hand in hand. They complement each other. You can't do one and not the other. You have to do both. We cannot obtain unity and peace, though, without Christ. In some ways, we'll never fully succeed in obtaining unity and peace in this life. But that should be our constant reminder, church, that we should strive for it. And we strive for unity and peace. We will live out a joyful practice.